1: Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while hunting deer. I'm your host, Josh Raley. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We've got a great one for you. I was able to sit down with Tony Peterson. Uh, if you have spent much time in the deer hunting space consuming media at all, You have certainly come across something by Tony. Now, Tony is an author. He's a podcast host. He uh, does some video stuff on YouTube. So Tony is just absolutely all over the place. And for good reason, Tony is a master when it comes to hunting whitetails. In this episode, we get into how Tony Peterson hunts the rut. We talk about things like scouting. We talk about things like staying mobile We talk about, uh, you know, sometimes during the rut, you're in the action. Sometimes you're not in the action and you need to go find it. We talked about volume hunting certain spots. We talked about calling. We talked about all sorts of stuff as it relates to the rut. It's a fantastic conversation. I think you're going to walk away with quite a few things in your back pocket to help you capitalize on opportunities this November. Before we jump into this week's episode, though, I do have to thank our show sponsors. First of all, our title sponsor, Tacticam. They're the makers of the best point of view cameras for outdoorsmen. Their new 6.0 and Solo Extreme cameras will help you capture your memories from the field so you can relive them just like you're back in the moment and so you can share them with family and friends. Their new 6.0, guys, is just a whole new level of camera. They have taken the stabilization way up. The LCD screen that's on there is an absolute game changer in my mind. And, uh, yeah, it's just a beast of a camera. Like, just go look at one of these things. They, they look so nice and so sleek. You should also check out their Solo Extreme camera, which has got a ton of great features, gives you HD footage, it's compact, durable, lightweight, waterproof, all that good stuff that you want, but it's a little bit more of a budget-friendly option. Now, you can learn more about the 6.0, the Solo Extreme, and Tacticam's full line of products, like all of their mounts and adapters, at Tacticam.com. Pick one up today and start sharing your hunt with Tacticam. This episode is also brought to you by Huntworth. They are making comfortable, durable camo without the sticker shock. Now, this year I'm wearing the Tarnan pattern. I've got the stuff actually out on the deck right now. I'm getting ready to head out for my rutcation this Sunday afternoon. I'm going to be pulling out of the driveway, and my Huntworth gear is going with me. It looks like I'm really going to be needing some of that rain gear. Uh, man, I tell you, I have not had an opportunity to wear the rain gear yet, but it is really, really quiet in the way of rain gear. You can head over to huntworthgear.com. To check out more. Also, Deer Lab, they're the number one app for hunters and land managers. They help you store, organize, and analyze your trail camera intel so that you can make data driven decisions as you target your buck this fall. Go check out their website, deerlab.com, to learn more about all their awesome features and to sign up for your 30 day free trial. And when you're ready to purchase, please use the code HUNTDEAR, all caps for 20% off of any of their plans. And uh, guys, pretty excited about this. I've actually got a new sponsor to introduce to you this week. Um, Well, I say introduced to you. You've probably heard of this brand before. If you haven't, uh, you haven't been hunting for very long or um, you've definitely stayed away from hunting media. So uh, as I've told you all before, I take partnerships with brands very, very seriously. I partner with brands that I trust, brands that I know that if I recommend them to you guys, you're going to receive high-end products, high-end service, and Another piece to this is that I want to work with brands that have good people behind the brands, not just a good product, not just good service, but like good people behind the brands that I feel like I can trust. And it's important to me that the brands are stuff that I actually use on a regular basis, and I don't think that there's any piece of hunting gear that I use more often than my Onyx Hunt app. Onyx is uh, the newest sponsor of this show. I've been using Onyx for years. I've used it in Louisiana, in Alabama, in Wisconsin. I use it all around town. I use it all the time when we're on hikes with the family. I use it while I'm camping. It is an app that literally goes with me everywhere that I go. So I'm jacked to be adding Onyx to our list of partners. As we get into this rut time frame, especially, you know, pinch points and bedding areas are crucial. And one feature that I've really been diving into the last couple of days is the optimal wind feature. You can go into one of your waypoints, say it's a tree stand or something, set the best wind direction, and it will let you know if the wind is good, bad, or just okay for that spot. It also gives you a wind calendar so you can see what the wind is doing right now, as well as the local forecast for sunrise, midday, and sunset. It's just one more way that Onyx makes hunting smart, simpler. If you're not already using Onyx, man, uh, I don't know. I don't know where you've been, but you should go check them out. You can get a seven-day free trial right now. Just go to your app store and search Onyx Hunt. And that's it for our sponsors. Thank you so much again for tuning in this week. And let's get into the conversation talking about the rut with Tony Peterson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast. And for this one, I've got Mr. Tony Peterson on. What's up, buddy?
0: Not much, man. I'm just uh, sitting at my computer, getting ready to go scout some deer tomorrow, and hunt a whole bunch of deer next week.
1: Yeah, man. What what has your season looked like so far?
0: I've had a weird season. Uh, I you know I started out in uh, in Colorado. I had a great hunt out there. I killed a nice bull on public land, and that was like a a sweet way to kick off the season. And then I came home, and I took my daughters over to Wisconsin for. Uh, I think three weekends in a row and they killed three buck or three deer, I should say two does and a buck. And so that was freaking sweet. And then I went to South Dakota and hunted public land and got my butt kicked <laughs> or uh, over and over and over again. Just couldn't, I couldn't get a big one to show up. And then when I did, uh, the first one was just just out of range. Did did, did almost everything he was supposed to do, but he, he skirted us a little bit. And then the, the second time I went back for a little short hunt there, I, I couldn't set up the way I wanted to on this pond. It was really hot, like mm-hmm. upper 70s. and So I had set up on the ground and I had a really good one come over the ridge right on top of me. And it was one of those deals when I heard him coming, I was like, I'm just screwed. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no way he's not going to get me. And so that was a, that was a learning experience, but that's kind of been it. Now I'm just, I'm scouting a bunch of stuff to get ready for the rut here.
1: Yeah, man. So, uh, quick question about South Dakota. What was the pressure like out there? Were you there, you're there, what, mid October?
0: So I was there the first six days that non-residents can hunt. So October one through the sixth or seventh or whatever. And then I went back, uh, like the 17th for a couple of days. Okay. And the pressure, the first trip the pressure was pretty light unless you got somewhere where you might see one to spot and stock. If I, if I got into the timber, you know, along the river and the breaks, I, I really didn't have any competition. I mean, I found some stands and si- and and cameras and stuff, but most of the people I saw hunting were out where they might maybe pick up a muley or pick up a, a white tail they could stalk. But the second time I went back, the pheasant season was open and that was different. There were people really in a lot of places that, that made it a hell of a lot tougher. Yeah, yeah.
1: Man, I, I talked with a lot of guys that were out in uh, – they did North Dakota this year. Now, South Dakota kind of messed things up when they bumped non-residents back to uh, October instead of well, – what they were a September 1st opener, right? Yep. So um, – but they said the, the North Dakota pressure this year was unlike anything that they've seen before.
0: Um, yeah. North North Dakota is pretty rough right now in a lot of places. Yeah. And I I actually had a trip planned out there, and I called it off, you know, last year – we we went out last year and hunted, and we all killed deer, but it was a it was a disaster of a it, it wasn't enjoyable. Yeah, and you know they've had EHD out there, and it's just tough, man. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of traveling hunting going on, and the 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 public land thing is just burning so hot still. Yeah, that it's you know I'm I that's part of the reason why I don't mind heading out some of these states in like mid October or a time when people might not be as keyed up to go but it almost feels like that doesn't You used to be able to do that for a while and kind of get away from the pressure. Now it's like, it's just a part of the deal. Yeah.
1: Do you see that kind of running its course anytime soon? Or do you think this is just kind of how hunting is going to be for the next five or 10 years?
0: I don't know, man. I, I think it's going to be that way. And it, you know, we we get into all these little arguments in the, in the hunting community about, you know, like recruiting hunters or do we need more hunters out there? Or did, did we make it too easy to get information through on and all these other platforms? And I look at that and I go, it's all irrelevant. Like what, what we need is more land open. Yeah, yeah. You know, more we access. need more public. I don't care what state you're in. You know, it, it's a, it's a net win for Everyone, if we open up more land, so these walk-in programs or however we have to do it to get more land available to people and spread that pressure out, uh, that's what we need. I think. Yeah, yeah.
1: So you're you're getting geared up now. You're going to be out hunting next week, uh, doing a little bit of filming as well, which I know is your favorite thing. To be carting along, a, <laughs> carting along a cameraman with you, which makes everything twice as twice as difficult. But uh, and I know you like to hunt the early season. How does How does Tony Peterson feel? when it comes to hunting the rut.
0: But I love it, man. I mean, I, I, I love the early season just because I, you know, that living in Minnesota, you kind of forced to hunt that early season. You know, this year, I think our gun season opens on November 5th. And so, you know, I mean, you really don't get the rut. Yeah. Uh, but I love hunting the rut, you know? And so this year, I, and I, I love in a way you know, early season things change quick, right? Like it might be acorns today. It might be something tomorrow or, you know, alfalfa today and something tomorrow. So you're kind of always in that game. But when I look at the rut, I go, I need to, I need to find some kind of terrain trap a a funnel or a pinch point or something that I just go, I'm comfortable with an all day sit there as long as the conditions don't push me out. And I kind of love that because it's simple. Yeah. Right. Like I, I, I don't mind sitting all day and I, and I love if I find something where I'm like, man, if I put in my time here, somebody's coming through. I love that. I, you know, and it's, it's really not overly complicated. So I kind of, I kind of dig that aspect of
1: it. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think there are a lot of guys right now who are kind of, um, uh, planning that, you know, you got the word vacation gets thrown a lot, around a lot, a lot of, uh, sick days and vacation days are about to be burned. As you're getting ready to head out and, and hunt the rut, you, you said you know there in, in Minnesota, correct? Uh, so what are you thinking about? Like what's running through your mind as you're prepping for this? Because I think I've seen a lot of guys and some folks that I know, uh, no offense if they're listening to this, but they, they put all this time into it and they've got all the gear and they've got the vacation days burned and they're burning the brownie points at home. And they get there and they shoot themselves in the foot like day after day after day and they end up kind of wasting their time and i don't know if that's because of lack of preparation and thinking ahead but but some of it i think is so what's going in what's going through your mind as you're like prepping yourself and thinking about the next week and how you're going to spend it
0: uh you know those guys you're talking about i think i think the problem a lot of people have during the rut is they're like it's going to save me and get buck's moving so i'm going to go to this spot and i'm going to sit all day man, if I don't have like a real high level of confidence in a spot, I don't want to be there. And there's, a, there's a difference, you know, like we think, you know, I'm going to go out and I see those off the stand every time I sat it all season long, I'm going to go there. And it's like, that's not really how buck movement in the rut works a lot of times. Like we, we think it's really random. It's not like they're, they have pretty specific routes they were on. And you know, if you look at like some radio collar studies, it's fascinating. It looks like a, a lot of times like a cloverleaf pattern they'll make mm-hmm. and they run the same routes over and over again. And we look at it and go, well, they're just covering the countryside and they're going to eventually, they're going to come by me. It's like, that's not a given. And so a lot of people go and they're like, I'm going to sit this, you know, field edge stand on a cut cornfield or something. Cause I see does here all the time. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're not going to sit there all day, right? Like you're probably not going to get there in the morning and then sit through the, you know, the dead hours of the day. You got to really do some scouting and find those spots that are like, You know, uh, there is a chance for this buck to stay in the cover and cruise through here at any point of the day. And that's, to me, Like I cover a lot of ground leading up to the rut. So I have spots like that for different winds where I go, it's going to keep me in the cover. There's some kind of terrain feature that's going to keep them coming through here. And ideally, what I really have started to like is, you know, this is different if you're in the big woods or whatever, but if, it, you know, like that, that Western Minnesota stuff that I'm going to go hunt that public, you're talking like five acres of woods here, three acres of woods around this homestead, maybe a little creek bottom connecting stuff. And so I'm just like, connect the dots, like what what's in between where these deer are probably going to go. And you start getting into some of those places and looking at the sign, you go, all right, there's no beds here. There's no beds over there this little patch of cover keeps them from getting spotted by anyone if they go from point A to B and you start putting stuff like that together. And just to me, that gives me so much confidence to go and sit all day. Like I'm not going to sit there at 10 o'clock in the morning and start second guessing myself and being like, I guess I'll go get a burger in town or I guess I'll leave or I need to be in a different stand. I want to walk into that stand in the dark in the morning and go, I firmly believe If I sit here till dark, somebody's going to come by and you you know how it works. Like sometimes it doesn't happen, but most of the time, if you put in your work, you can find spots like that where it's like, I'm I'm good here. This is going to work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I'm glad you brought that up. So I, I'm, I had a spot that I've been hunting the last couple of years and, you know, not wanting to get hung up on, on last year's deer or whatever. I put a camera up in this area and it's, it's in this really tight pinch that kind of leads up into some doe bedding. And as things have gotten hotter over the last couple of days, I've noticed bucks coming real close to my camera right past this scrape as they head up into where these does are bedded. And then this camera is close enough in where it's catching them on the way back out too. So it's really cool. So they're heading up and like looping around and they can't go any further or they hit a lot of, uh, well, I won't say too much. Some folks know close to where I hunt. So uh, they, they head up, but they have to turn around and come back. And I'm catching them on the way back through like another 35 yards past where they came in the first time. So it's kind of like you're saying with that cloverleaf pattern almost of just, and I'm sure it happens on a much larger scale, but this is kind of on the micro scale of like, you know, they head right up into this bedding and then circle through and then boom, right back down out of there once they see no does have, have come in just yet. And that's just started in the last four or five yep. days or so. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you're one of these guys that's got a really limited time, which I know you work on limited time quite a bit are you going to burn a day for scouting if you haven't had a chance to yet? If you're going to, you're going to hit that timber, are you going to burn that first day and say, I'm finding these spots that give me a high degree of confidence?
0: No, I, I'm scouting enough ahead of time where I don't feel like I need to do that, but I should say, so just as an example, uh, you know, this Western Minnesota public that I'm going to hunt, the the spots I've found that I'm going to sneak in and set up in, uh, some of them are, I'm like, that's the spot on spot. I'm going to kill right there. Some of them are like, maybe, but I'll probably see something. And I've got, I've got one setup that I'm going to go into and put up. I'm probably going to sit there the first morning I can, uh, where the visibility should be really good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be positioned between this little creek bottom and this patch of timber You know, I went in there and scouted it last weekend, jumped some does out of there. There's a little bit of water in the bottom. And as I'm looking at, at the forecast, I'm like, okay, I want to be, I'm not on that water, but I'm probably 80 yards away from it. You know? And, and so I'm just like, this is, this is kind of working to be one of those places where if I don't kill one right there, I'll probably get clued into something. So it's kind of like an observation stand where you might kill from. And then as the week progresses and it starts popping open a little bit more, I'll get into those spots it, where it's like, this is where you're going to kill. It. Okay. You know, like this, yeah. this is a place where you are set up right here. Cause he should come from there to there and you should kill him.
1: Okay. Gotcha. If you were, so it, let's say you're a guy that, that hasn't been able to scout at all. Are you going to rely on your, your map scouting and that kind of thing and try to get in, like you're saying to a place where you can observe, or would that sh- kind of change the game for you as like, Oh, well, I haven't been able to scout this at all. So therefore I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a day. Or are you going to say, I want to observe where I might kill at, on some spots that are, you know, that I've picked off the map.
0: Uh, you, you can find, I mean, I've killed bucks just pulling up on X or whatever and going out and being like, this looks like the spot. But even then when you get in there, you're like, okay, you know, maybe this is the, the the little runway here. Maybe this is the terrain trap or whatever, but usually when you get in there, you got to fine tune it. So a lot of times what I look at in, in that situation, like when I travel, I do that a lot. I'm like, okay, here's a waypoint. Here's a waypoint. Here's a waypoint. I walk in, is does the sign support a sit. And if it does, it's usually for me, like a, a sit one day, move, sit one day, move kind of thing. I mean, it just, that's just kind of how you have to do it, you know? And it, I would say, you know, anybody who says they probably haven't had time to scout, like find a little bit of time, you know what I mean? <laughs> Make it, like, yeah. oh, really? Yeah. And, it, and this is, this is something, I mean, we do this all the time where it's like, I'm going to go put a camera out and that's going to be good enough. And I just look at that. I mean, we, I have a little food plot on one of my properties in Wisconsin where I usually take my little girls to hunt. And we sat there this year and I had a camera out on it, you know, cause you're gonna. And the one day I watched six deer feed in front of that sucker. And I got a picture of two of them. Wow. And I'm talking, I'm talking like eight feet away browsing, like not, not running through, not way out on the, you know, the end of maybe the trigger range or whatever. And I just look at that and I go, I need to just, I need to see something. I need to see some sign, something more than that. And I think we rely on trail cameras so much and, really, when you look at the rut, you go, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. There's situations where trail cameras are super valuable, but you're already kind of working on old info, yep. you know, even, I mean, you know, cell phones or cell cameras are a little different, but you're still like, Oh, I had a buck chase through here three days ago. It's like, well, who cares? Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if oh, you yeah. have 10 bucks in the last three days, that's different. And so I'd rather go in and, I mean, to me, if I see, you know, big running tracks or I get in there and, you know, if you're around a ton of fresh sign, you're around where bucks want to be like, that's going to be a part of their loop somehow, you know? And so to me, I don't know, getting in there, even, even if it's just like, I'm going to sneak through with my mobile setup, my saddle or whatever, and I'm going to look and just like fine tune a spot when I get there. it's, It's so important to give a little bit of time to that scouting.
1: Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point-of-view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game-changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with a 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with a 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. This episode is also brought to you by DeerLab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. DeerLab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data so that you can make data-driven decisions this fall. DeerLab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target. And you can even mass edit your timestamps, which is a great feature if you're like me and you forget to correct the time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com for your 30-day risk-free trial. And when you're ready to purchase, use the code HUNTDEER, all caps, at checkout for 20% off of any of their plans. Now let's get back to the show. Tell me a little bit about, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times the Having that confidence in in your spot, can you kind of run me through what what is it that gives you that confidence? Is it is it a certain concentration of scrapes, a certain size of rubs, a certain kind of terrain feature? Like what is it that that kind of trips your trigger where you're like, yeah, I've got confidence in this place.
0: Uh, it's partially sign and it's partially just the the what the spot has to offer. Like I like I like you know I, I like a good pinch point, right? Like I like a good funnel, whatever, but what else does the spot offer, right? So like if it's the only place the deer can travel and stay in the cover, that's a huge bonus. If it's, if it's a connecting point between, you know, a big chunk of timber here and a big chunk of timber there, or, a, you know, really brushy Creek bottom here and, you know, wooded ridges here, whatever that has, like it, it, it has to have more, right? Cause I, th- I think about this, you know, I grew up in Southeastern Minnesota in the, in the bluff country there and I look at it and I go, I could find a banging pinch point every 10 or 20 acres. So we'll, we'll, there has to be something more, you know, like there, it has to offer me something more. And it's the same thing. So like I, I hunt Northern Wisconsin a lot where I don't have bluffy stuff, you know, like it's, it's kind of monoculture from timber for miles. And so it's like, okay, now I need to find something subtle. That's a pinch point, but there has to be something else. There has to be like a, the right age clear cut by there, or maybe a little Creek where they're going to cross in some spot and it's going to neck down or, you know, like a community scrape or just like, give me something extra. And when you start finding spots where it's like, now this offers, you know, obviously this train travel route thing, it offers some real good bedding cover. They can, they can not get spotted from the road if they travel through this way. Like when you start stacking that stuff up, then you start getting confidence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when you're, when you're hunting during the rut and you know, you're going in mobile, let's say you've got your stand on your back or your saddle on or whatever you're, you're trying to do when you're going in and and trying to figure out, okay, is this the spot or where's the spot within the spot? Or do I have the confidence? Can I find that extra thing? How concerned are you about your own disturbance? Like, let's say you run through, uh, some suspected bedding, and you don't find a ton of sign until the very end. You find good sign. Are you going right back in there the next day? Or are you kind of thinking, like, ah, I really blew that up yesterday?
0: No, I'll, I'll hunt it. I'm not, there's no you know, mulligans now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and so this, this is one of the things we don't talk about a lot where the value of satellite imagery as far as walking into a place and knowing how probably to get in there is really important to me because i know you know we used to walk into spots you know you'd have a paper map and you're like well i'm i'm just walking around trying to see what i can see and you know you might have had a destination in mind because of the top of the lines or something but really now you can kind of surgically strike this stuff without you know like without ever having been there and you know how it is you get in there and things are different but you can look at this and go man if, if i think this spot on you know aerial photography is the spot I can plan my route to get in there where I think I'll disturb it. The least, you know, as little as possible. And you know, that's like mostly the name of the game, right? Like it's, it's really about keeping your presence as low as possible. But you know, at the same time, I don't, if I walk in and I jump deer now, I'm like, "Eh, whatever, I'm still going to hunt it. You know, like I've, I've killed bucks. I jumped that came back, uh, you know, I used to, when I was growing up, if we had a deer snort at us, we're like, well, this this is over. I might as well go home. And just, just as an example, uh, that buck I was talking about in South Dakota a couple weeks ago, I had a doe, and two, a doe and a fawn come down the ridge behind me, bust me the same way he did, snort like crazy, run off. And it was, it was like dead calm. I mean, everything, I, I'm thinking everything could probably hear it. And then the next year that came down the trail was like 130 inch buck on public land. And so I just go, it sucks. <laughs> you know, like jumping deer, getting blown at by deer sucks. It's not as big of a deal a lot of times as we think it is. Yeah.
1: And I, I think, I think too, this time of year, especially it's really not as big of a deal as you think it is. Like I've heard, I've heard deer snort at each other, especially during the rut. You know, you have a buck, a buck cruise through a smaller buck. And all of a sudden, all the does in the bedding area start blowing at it and all kinds of things because they're being pestered. So, like, who knows what, what they attribute that disturbance to. Um, do you Are you worried about your ground scent at all or just kind of like, man, it is what it is, this time of year is busy, and they've got other things on their mind?
0: Uh, you know, I try to, I, I wear knee-high rubber boots all the time, right? Like, and, and I say that because, you know, having trained a lot of bird dogs and messed around with them, like one of the ways that I can, I can run better drills with my dogs on like, especially shed antler training is knee high rubber boots, treat them with ozone if you want, or spray them down. Certain sprays seem to work really well. And I can see my dogs can't pick up that scent. Mm. Like if I wear leather boots or I wear my you know regular shoes, I can see them just follow my scent right to the antler. And so I do that and I just try not to touch stuff. And that's, you know, that's probably when you're, when you're filming, like that's one of the things that drives me the most, not yeah. like, you know what I mean? Cause you, you might have somebody who doesn't really know how to hunt following you around and you're like, can you please not put your hand on that? Not grab that tree <laughs> and not, you know, not set yourself down here. And you know, it, it just, it is what it is. So, you know, they try to be really cognizant of it, but it, you're going to, you're going to leave, some you're going to make some noise. Like it just happens.
1: Yeah. Are there, you, you said there are some sprays that you found that seem to work pretty well with your bird dogs any particular kind i've i've kind of written it off so i took the i took the whole scent elimination thing way too far and tried the whole like john Eberhardt approach of like just being super hardcore about it and then i realized like this sucks a lot and it's making me hate hunting like i don't i don't even want to go hunting anymore because i don't i feel like the the whole routine has kind of ruined it for me so but any any of those sprays that you're like hey this this is worth throwing on
0: so in all of my you know, testing, which is totally anecdotal with bird dogs. Uh, Tink's vanish spray was unreal. It worked, it worked the best for me. I don't even know if they make it anymore. I had a ton of it. I still have some of it. Um, but what I look at and, and the other thing that works really well is ozone. But if you, if you put like your boots in an ozone in a tote and then you run ozone on it, eventually you're going to wear those suckers out. It's going to kind of degrade the, the glue and stuff. Cause ozone is a bleaching agent. that yep. works but it works really well. Yeah. Like if you, if you treat an antler with ozone and treat some gloves, you can watch a, a really good bird dog, not be able to smell it. And I could not do that with very many of the sprays. And so the way I look at it, cause I get asked about scent control all the time, is there's certain situations where like an ozonics works really well, like a five to seven mile per hour wind, especially that kind of like variable wind works pretty well. Uh, but I, I mostly play the win. But what I look at is if I can treat some clothes, like if I can treat my boots and, and that's going to keep down some of the scent from walking in, that's good enough. Because, you know, I don't I, – we get into these debates all the time. Like, man, I don't think you can fully beat a deer's nose most of the time. It seems like with an, with an ozone machine, you can trick them into thinking, you know, you're a lot farther away than you are just by some of their reactions and stuff and out of a ground blind, they're pretty legit contained. But mostly when you look at, you know, when I, when I like, I've interviewed people who are experts in dog like olfactory capabilities. And when you start looking at them and comparing them to a deer, I know it's not like totally apples to apples. It's like that dog is smelling in parts per trillion and that deer probably is too. And so I, I had a guy who's an expert in this stuff from Texas tech explain it to me. And he said, if you took an Olympic sized swimming pool and you did three drops of something in there, that's what a dog can smell. Jeez. And if, if a deer is anywhere near there and I firmly believe they are now, you're sitting out there going, I did all this scent control. And it's like, your body is making sense all the time. Yep. Like there, and you know, when you watch, when you watch how they work out there, like you, you'll see deer smell one side of a leaf than the other side, or like a, you know, a piece of grass, And you're like, I can't can't even imagine being like thinking that you're going to divine some information on this side of a blade of grass and you might get something (laughs) different on the other side. Like that's a, that's a level we can't understand. Yeah. And so I, I kind of, I'm kind of the point where I'm like, I'm going to play the wind hard and I'm going to try to leave as much, as little scent as possible going in and out.
1: Yeah, man, I, I, I'm a big believer in ozone as well. So that's pretty much the only thing I do anymore Um, but I, like you have kids and I, I got one of those, uh, scent crusher bags, man, and threw a dirty diaper into it and ran a cycle. And when I pulled it out and I couldn't smell the contents of the diaper, I was like, okay, I'm sold. Like, I don't do much for my body, but as far as like my clothes and treating that kind of stuff, I'm going to do it. It's just too easy, you know, to to treat it before you go out. And then, you know, you feel like you've at least done what you can, you know, as far as handling that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, people talk all the time about how it can't work they don't really understand how it functions. I mean, we've, we've been using ozone since like the 1880s to purify water and air. Like this is not, this is not new. You know I mean? They used it in Vietnam in in like field tents to, you know, like do emergency surgeries out there in the field to disinfect the air and tropic environments. Like it's been a long road for ozone to end up in our little market, but it works. I mean, it's, it's just what it does. Like it's, it's a bleaching agent. It's, it's the reason when you're standing outside after a thunderstorm, the air smells clean. Like that's ozone, right? You know, lightning creates the Corona discharge and then ozone's heavier than the atmosphere. So it falls down. So we smell it and the air smells clean. It's the same thing when you put an ozone generator above your head, you can direct the stream of ozone because it's heavier than the atmosphere. So people think it floats away and it doesn't. And so it's, it's pretty sweet. Like, I mean, it, it works, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, man, I'm curious when it, when it comes to, you know, kind of circling back to the rut, do you view like, and this is 100% selfish, like I'm getting out October 30th, I pull out of the driveway, I'm hunting the morning of the 31st, hopefully maybe midday. Um, Are you viewing October 31st a lot different maybe than you are November 10th? Like, do you break that time period of the rut down into phases that kind of help you conceptualize what you should be looking for? Or do you kind of just lump it all into the same basket?
0: Uh, you know, if you're talking like a Halloween ish type of hunt, I tend to focus more on a staging area. I don't count on a lot of chasing and cruising going on yet. I know some of it happens, but what I see, you know, end October, first couple days in November, a lot of times is like those big ones. They're not, they're not busting loose yet. Like they're, they're just, they're going to move, but they're going to move in the cover. And that's, that's the time to me when if, if you're around a bunch of fresh rubs and you're in a place that's tore up with sign, that's where I want to be. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not like, I got to be downwind of a doe bedding area or I got to be on a, a crazy pinch point right now. I'm like, I want to be where the sign says some big dude feels awful comfortable moving in daylight. Yeah.
1: When, when is that for for you? And I know it's situational depending on where you're hunting, but like what's that breaking point for you where you're like, okay, now I'm shifting over to terrain features, trying to catch a buck cruising or shifting over to doe bedding and that kind of stuff.
0: Uh, it depends on the weather, you know, it depends how cold it gets and it depends, you know, I would say I'm probably going to make that switch by like the fourth or fifth of November. Um, and it gets, you know, it's dependent. I keep looking at the 10 day forecast right now and it's not making me that happy. Cause it's like, it's garbage. It's garbage. Yeah. So, <laughs> so then you're looking and going, uh, might might be a little bit delayed when I'd make that move. Uh, or it might just, I might just spend more time where there's water nearby or something. So it kind of just depends on the conditions, you know, but I look at it like if I had to say just like, there's a hard date where it's like the cruising, the chasing, it's going to bust loose. For me, that's always November 7th. Like I, I look at that date and I go, that's the one where I want to be all day on a pinch point. Okay. All
1: right. When it, when it comes to, hunting during the rut and and sign as you get closer to that you know november 4th 5th 6th 7th kind of time frame how important is buck sign to you at that point when the when you know maybe they've stopped using scrapes quite as much and that kind of stuff like are you still trying to get in real close proximity to some good buck sign or are you saying like ah, other things kind of trump that now
0: uh i'm not nearly as concerned with buck sign then i'm i'm more concerned with the terrain and how they're going to get from point A to B. But I will say this. I'm not not like a huge scrape hunter. I like scrapes in the middle of October. But if you find, like if if you pay attention when you're kind of in-season scouting and you find what you'd call like a community scrape, like a great big one, maybe it has more than one licking branch on it like sometimes they do, that usually indicates there's like a, a travel hub there. Yeah. Right. Like that's usually a place where a lot of deer are going to be able to communicate a lot of does filter through there. The bucks know it. And it might not matter that that scrape is there to you during the rut hunt. But what it means is you're in the area you should be in. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Cause it's, it's like, it's just like a signal, like a lot of deer come through here and we're communicating with each other. And the reason a lot of deer come through there is A, B, C, D, whatever doesn't really matter. You just know that they use that spot. And so there's times where I'll find a scrape like that, and I don't care about hunting the scrape. I care that the scrape is there and what that means to the deer. Sure.
1: So I, I've i found that kind of a scrape over the last couple of years, and it's been pretty pretty regular every year, opens back up. This year, for the first time, I hung a camera on it early before it ever opened up. Uh, and I got nothing for like the first three weeks. I'm thinking like, oh man, this is a bust. My camera's spooking everything out of there, you know, thinking all the bad things. Well, then last Saturday, uh, a really, really nice buck came through, opened the scrape up. And when he did, it was like the floodgates opened, does started coming through, hitting the scrape. I've now had five different mature bucks on this scrape. Uh, so I think it's like what you're talking about. It's just that travel hub where, you know, everything wants to be you're not setting up to try to shoot that scrape necessarily as you work your way into November. But what if, what if you're, you know, October 31st, November 1st and 2nd, are you going to try to hug that a little bit to, to hopefully get a shot at that scrape?
0: Uh, sometimes. I okay. mean, if, if, if there's a, if there's another reason to be there. Yeah. Okay. It, you know, if I don't, I don't set up downwinded scrapes like specifically to shoot a scrape very often. Um, I do sometimes like October 10th through the 20th and in the right situation, especially in the pre-rut, I might, if there, if the, if the spot offers me something else.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So I, I want to circle around to, you know, kind of the, the big rage these days when it comes to, especially mobile hunting is that first sit, best sit, like, you know, you get in, you hunt something, then boom, you're out. Cause you just assume the spots burned and you move on. When it comes to the rut, though, um, how are you thinking about, like, volume hunting certain spots? Are you ever going to say, man, this is a spot, I'm going to give three days to this? Or are you like, ah, I'm going to give it a day and then I'm out?
0: Uh, It depends what the deer show me. Okay. I mean, so I'll I'll give you an example. There's there's times where I, you know, I might have a four-day stretch during the rut where I'll sit eight different spots. Like if, if, if I'm just not feeling it or I'm not seeing what I need to see, like this happened to me in Minnesota, I think two years ago, uh, I just couldn't get on. I just, I, you know, like, I'm like, maybe this is it, you know, sit there, not see anything or see scrappers or something and just keep moving. But there's other times where I have so much faith in a spot. I don't care. Like, I know if you give me four days on a certain spots, like I've, I've got a spot I set up for uh, one week in November this year that's on a a ridge. And it's, you know, last year I killed a buck below it on a pond setup. That's got some terrain working for you, but every freaking buck I saw was started there or ended there. I mean, it was just like, it was like, that was the spot. So I went in there this summer and set up to to get in there to sneak in the whole thing. And that spot, just knowing what I know, I probably, as long as the wind stays, stays good for it, I, I wouldn't need to leave there. You know what I mean? So it's like, but I have, have some experience with that. And then you never know, right? Like I might go sit there and see some things and I'm like, actually that's the spot. Like this is this I thought was nope. And so it just depends. And the the other thing I'll say, you sort of, it depends on your options, right? Like how much land do you have to work with? Like what's, you know, are you on public? Are you on private? Like I think it was 2019. I, I went and hunted some, public in North Dakota. I'd never been to before. And I had a couple spots marked on my map, went out there, walked into the first spot. And I think I had, I think I had four or five days to hunt. And when I walked in there to look at it with a, you know, stand on my back, I was like, I'm not leaving. This is it. This is all I need. Mm-hmm. And I sat there every day. I moved one time like a hundred yards to get into a little better position. But the third day I was there, I sat all day and I had one forky come through at last light.
1: Ooh.
0: You know? Ooh. So yeah, that's all I saw. But I had seen other bucks the previous days and then the fourth morning I'm sitting there and the only doe I saw that entire sit brought in a, you know, nice Pope and young eight pointer and I shot him at 20 yards. And it was like, just, it was just set up right. Like when you, when you read the terrain, you know, it's public land. So he wasn't, they weren't going to go run across the open stuff and it just connected a couple of bigger, you know, bigger chunks of timber. And I just, the sign was right. The trails were right. The terrain was right. And you just go, it's good enough like i don't you're not going to need to leave here to kill a buck. Yeah. And so it's it just depends, it's situational, you know.
1: This episode is brought to you by the OnX Hunt app. OnX gives you up-to-date landowner information, color-coded public and private land boundaries, and gives you a ton of tools to help you hunt smarter. One tool I'm loving right now is their optimal wind feature, which lets you set the optimal wind for a given location, then tells you in real time whether the wind is good, bad, or just okay for that spot. You can try it risk-free for seven days right now. Just download the Onyx Hunt app on your preferred app store today. Let's say you get into one of those spots, and I'll give you kind of the, the situation I found myself in last year that created a lot of like inner turmoil for me. So I was I was on what I thought was really good action, um, lots of does running around, lots of small bucks running around, uh, especially before daylight you know, both mornings I hunted this spot, heard a ton of chasing going on in the bedding area, a lot of grunting and that kind of thing. Uh, Never saw a shooter. um, Well, never saw a, 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 let's say a mature buck or something like that, a two-year-old or older, three-year-old or older, whatever your standards are. Never saw a really good one in that spot. And I was beginning to think about moving on and that kind of thing. So I just threw up some cameras and walked off. Um, They showed me later on that that some bigger bucks started showing up around that 4th 5th 6th time frame and then it was like okay then it was really on if you're getting into that kind of action and it doesn't look like your presence is slowing down you know the 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 heat of the area are you going to stick with that even if you're just seeing dinks running around
0: uh it depends okay it totally depends i mean it, it depends what what the activity is like right like are the are Am I just seeing dinks cruising or are they chasing does all over and harassing them? Cause somebody big going to show up. And the other thing too is I've killed quite a few bucks by seeing just one buck cruise through a spot. And a lot of times that's a scrapper, but they'll show you how they use the terrain. You know what I mean? So yeah. we go out, we go out a lot of times and we say it's no good unless I see a big one do something. And I go, man, this happens to me a lot in the big woods where I'll see a deer, not even maybe a buck, do something. And I go, that's what the deer do here. Whether you're looking at 140 incher or a year and a half old doe that doesn't even have any fawns. Like you're like, that's how they come off this ridge and cross that creek. That's super valuable. You know? So it kind of, it kind of just depends. Yeah. So, so Tony,
1: I'm curious. I was talking with a buddy the other day and I said, Hey, I'm going to have Tony Peterson on the podcast. He's like, man, that's awesome. We started talking about uh, you know, different things to ask you. And one of the things we mentioned, or he mentioned was, dude, you need to get Tony to give you Tony Peterson's five rules for the rut. Like what are five things that like, you know, a guy needs to live and die by. So do you think you could rattle those off just kind of off the top of your head? You know, your, you know, five things that you're like, Hey, if you're getting out for your rutcation, these are the five things that you have to do or have to not do, uh, to make your hunt not suck.
0: Uh I'll say a couple and then there's one I kind of want to get into. So sit all day. Okay. Just figure out a way to do it. Cuz you know, people I just wrote an article for the for mediator about this where people are like everybody talks about it, right? So few people actually do it. And man, it's not just to kill that buck at noon, which might happen. It's to be out there and maximize your time and if you don't kill it, you might get clued into something. Like you might see that deer do something where you're like, I need to be there. You know, like it just, it's so, you have like 11 hours of daylight Like use it. yeah. You know, especially, especially if you're hunting pressured ground, right? Like if you're hunting public land, most of your competition is going to leave the woods for lunch. They just are, you know? And if you think that like the deer aren't pretty tuned into when people are there and when they're not, that's crazy. They they know that stuff. So figure out a way to sit all day. Um, you know, we talked earlier about just, like, you got to have the confidence in your spot. Like, don't – and this is kind of what I want to get into is, like, we tend to use the rut as sort of default mode. Like, now I'm going to sit the stand I always want to sit because it's easy to get to and I can see a lot, but the rut's going to save me. Even though I haven't seen a big one on here all season, you know, or maybe <laughs> since opening night, I'm going to go there and now – a buck's going to bring it. And I I think a better strategy is to like get in and take some risks. Like do, do a little bit of gambling and get into a spot that you're curious about. I think, I think the thing that holds a lot of hunters back are, are way too high of standards for their experience level and not taking those risks, like scout out those, those terrain traps and go in and sit them, give them a day. Like instead of, and you know, we, we do this all the time. And I, I think about this, like, quite a bit because i have some buddies who have like big redneck stands on you know the, the food plot with the pond, the pond built right there and like this little mecca for deer and they just sit it all the time and i think we're raising a generation of deer in some places that look at those things and they go i'm not going by that sucker anymore <laughs> like we're already seeing bucks like kind of skirt them and i just look at that and i go this might be the difference of if you, if you don't climb into that box line, but you get into the woods a hundred yards away, you might be on a completely different hunt. Yeah. And so yeah. I always tell people, you know, like we go into the rut a lot of times with, you know, and whatever, set your standards to whatever you want. But a lot of people go in with too high a standards thinking the rut's going to deliver a big buck to them when they probably should just be hunting, you know, like a, a decent representation like that two and a half year old deer you're talking about, like whatever. Go figure out how to do that, you know. Like, don't. It's like the rut comes on. It's like now it's big bucks or nothing. It's like, look at the success rates. Most people don't kill one. Like, most people don't kill one in Iowa, which it which literally has the easiest rut hunting that you're gonna get out there. It's like it's still not easy, you know. So like, I, I look at that and go, the rut is actually like should be a motivator to do more work and be more disciplined. And we look at it like an excuse to kind of half-ass it. Yeah, and that's, that's good. It doesn't, it doesn't work for most people. So I don't know. There's like three things in there. I don't know.
1: <laughs> no, that's that's great. That's great. I, I'm, I'm going to have a guy on um, my other show here in the next couple of weeks. He took um, – he has an app that he put together that just recorded like hunter-reported sightings, you know. And when you look at hunter-reported sightings as, as opposed to like their effort – Uh, obviously most sightings are you know in the morning and then in the the evening but when you when you take into consideration the amount of hours spent on stand that middle of the day was actually the highest bump on public land in October and November of guys who were out out hunting like those uh if you if you I guess make all things equal as far as like amount of hours spent that middle of the day part actually saw more deer those those hunters who were staying on stand so I thought that was really interesting so yeah for sure sit all day and I don't know. For me, man, that middle of the day part is is really nice because it's like now it's kind of warm. The sun's out. It's a nice gentle breeze. It's like, what else am I going to do? Go sit in my truck? Like, yep. go sit at the diner in town? That yep. That sounds lame.
0: Well, it, and you got to think about it too. Is you know, if you get in there and you have the confidence, you've made one disturbance going in. That's it. Now you go in, you come out, you go back. It's a different, it's a different thing. You're making more noise, you're leaving more scent. And you know, like you said, I, I love sitting all day now, as long as I have a ton of confidence. And if you, if you do it enough, you're gonna have one of those encounters or one of those sightings where you're like, this is worth, it." you know, like last year when we were filming one week in November, I killed a buck at like one in the afternoon in Wisconsin. And I knew when we went out that morning, I even called it on this, uh, you know, early in the morning. I was like, this is the day to do this. Like it just, it was right. And I didn't even, you know, we pack in sandwiches and the whole thing to make it through the day. And I didn't even want to sit down and eat a sandwich at like noon because I'm like, this is at any second now, this is going to happen. It was November 6th, it just was right. And you know, one o'clock in the afternoon, I look up and here comes the state pointer down the hill. And you're just like, it just, it was the day. And you know, if you weren't there, you don't kill them. Like it's so, it's so simple. And so it just takes like so much of this stuff that we talk about is like, people are like, what's your strategy? What's, you know, like what's the style, what's the secret to this? Should I call? Should I do this? I'm like, just confidence in your setup is huge. Like if you have confidence to sit out there all day or even an extra hour or two in the morning and come out a little bit earlier in the afternoon, that confidence kills deer. Yeah. Like, it just does. Yeah,
1: And man, you, you hunt so much different too. Like I, I have not used my cameras well in the last couple of years, uh, especially around this time frame, Cause I just, you know, getting in, the, I mean, when you have a, a family, you know, when you have a family, you have small kids, like just getting out to the woods to check cameras and move cameras around. That's a day I don't have, you know what I mean? Or that's a half a day that I don't have where I'd rather be doing something else. This year I kind of got it right. And it's given me a ton of confidence in a couple of the spots that I have scouted last year. Now, spots, I mean like a 10-acre area where I hop around inside of that. Now, I noticed, though, my approach going into this year, I'm so much more dialed because of that confidence. Like, because of my confidence in the spot, like, you better believe I'm not breaking a stick on the way in if I can help it. You know, whereas otherwise, I'm just kind of like, oh, well, let's just hurry up and get to my tree and make whatever noise I need to getting up. Um, that will not be the case this year because I'm pretty convinced that there's a big one close by, you know, could be any yeah, time
0: that of the day. <laughs> but that matters. And that, that kind of self-doubt you're talking about that can creep in. That is a success killer, man. Like, and you see this, they, uh, to me, it's never more obvious than if you're on like an elk hunt and it's like day four and you haven't heard or seen an elk in like three days, you just start like kind of bumbling around. You know, like, you're yeah. just like, yep. whether you kind of like consciously acknowledge it or not, you're, you're navigating through that world differently and not in a better way. And that's, <laughs> that's one of the things I will say about trail cameras. Like, man, you get a picture of a big one in your spot and it changes how you look at that. You're like, I don't, you know, I'm going to go in earlier. And that that's another thing too, is man, I'm, I'm to the point now where I'm going in earlier and earlier to get in there in the dark, let things settle down and just trying to like really maximize those opportunities. And if you need a trail camera picture of a big one to do that, that's great. Like, but use it, like use it as a motivator, like you said, and understand if you got a pick, even, you know, this is a really common complaint with a lot of people is like the hunting industry doesn't address the small property uh, hunter very much. Right? It's like, cause well, I only have 20 acres to hunt or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that buck comes through three times a season, but he doesn't live there. I'm like, yeah, but he comes through there. Like that's part of his range. And so it's even in some of those situations, it's even more important to be like, I have the confidence that this deer could come through instead of thinking he's probably not. Because like you said, when you walk in, you'll walk in different. Yep. You'll sit different. You'll pay attention different. Like it all, all that stuff matters. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've put myself on a very strict no cell phone policy, uh, in the stand this year because because of that exact factor. You sit on stand different when you're confident, and I over the last couple of years, I, I, I'm kind of ashamed to say, like my phone has cost me dear, you know. And it, and it's it's a work email that I'm sending, or it's a text message back to my wife that I'm sending, and it's like, nope, not this year. Like that's that's got to be put away. I've got to be I've got to be all there, right? So I'm curious, Tony you get into a lot of hunts and you've, like you've said, you've had your butt kicked your fair share of times going out to these public land hunts. What do you do when you get into day three, four five? And that confidence really starts to sink. And you know that if you let that creep in, it's really going to impact everything else about the rest of your hunt. And like you said, not in a good way. So what do you do to kind of pick yourself up out of that?
0: It's always reset moment. Like I, I'm, this is going to be a weird, weird transition here, but I look at life like we just need reset moments, right? Like you're, you're pissed off with work or your family or whatever. Like it's time to go to the gym or time to go for a little run or, you know, like I, I need a, a fresh view or something, you know, like we need, you need, you need something. And when I'm in that position and it happens to me all the time, it's like, I just go, okay, you're not on it, but it's out there. So where is it? Like, where, where are you riding a dead program? Like, or is it just something where it's like, this spot won't do it for you. This, this property is not it. And I, I know that. And so it's one of the, the the reasons I push this message all the time. Like get as many spots to hunt as you can. And people are like, well, duh. But I'm like, no, if you, if you have 40 acres of private land to hunt and that's all you hunt, but there's, 5,000 acres of public land on the road, you're selling yourself short. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And we, we do this all the time. And this is one of the things that drives me nuts about hunters is like, we, we want the hunt to happen where and how we want it to happen. You know? And it's like, that's not how mother nature works. And so you hear guys complain constantly. Like in Minnesota, I hear these complaints all the time about how the DNR mismanages the deer. Right? Like every, every state you hear yep, that. Yep. And Every time anything comes up where it's like, well, hey, should we bump the, the gun season back so it's not right at the beginning of the rut? People are like, no, like, I don't, I don't want to change. Or should we do this or should we do that? It's like, no, I don't want to change. I want to have a good hunt, but I don't want to change anything. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, that's not how, it's, it's, not, it, it's obviously, if you say the system's broken, then something has to give. You know, and instead you just want to sit there and bitch about the people managing the deer and not give up a thing for yourself because you want it to happen a certain way. We do that with the rut a lot, like on a personal level where it's like, this is my spot. I know it's going to happen here. And then you go in and after two days, you're like, it's not going to happen here, but I want it to. So what do you do? And this is one of the things that when you travel a lot to hunt and you go hunt public land in all these different states, mostly it goes wrong. And so you just kind of get into the idea of like, I probably didn't get this right, but I'm going to try. And, you know, and that's like, sometimes I, I've been on hunts where I'm like, I, I did all my research. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I hunted Oklahoma like four years ago and there's a chunk of public land down there that's like 4,000 acres. I was like, that's all I need. My buddy and I drove down there 14 hours. We had all of our, you know, waypoints down there and in three days, I think I saw three deer and 712 hunters. Like it was, <laughs> it was just, you know, beyond, I couldn't overcome it. And so I've got hours and hours of e scouting in. I've driven 14 freaking hours to get down there. You know, you set up camp, the whole deal. And it's just like, no way. So what do you do? So we pulled up the maps. We look at it and we we'll go, let's just go try something. Let's, we need this reset moment. We pulled everything. We drove four hours north to the north part of the state and got into, uh, an area of public land where I walked in to the spot I picked out, set up my stand, and I went to grab a candy bar out of my pack and heard something behind me and a doe ran in, and I shot her. I said, okay, this was a 1,000 times better than the spot we just left. The next morning, my buddy shot a doe, and then the next night, I shot a buck. And it was like, it just took that reset moment. Now, I mean, that was a pain in the ass, right? We had to pull camp, we had to drive four hours, we had to walk in blind to a spot, but sometimes you just need to go – the idea of this spot that I had isn't reality. I fell in love with the idea of killing one right here on my food plot or on this little, you know, this pinch point or this stretch of timber between these two spots and it's showing me that this was not right. So it's like, now I need something up. I just need something else. Yeah.
1: That's really good. That's really good. So I want to, I want to circle around to something you just mentioned there in Oklahoma but something that's going to play into pretty much all, everyone's hunting who's out on public land this um, for the rut this year, and that is human pressure. Like how much do you take that into account when you're starting to get into some of these places? Let's say you find a good spot that you're like, man, this is it. This is a, an excellent pinch point. The sign is here, but you also can tell like you're not the only genius that figured that spot out. Are you going to kind of pull out and let them have it? Are you going to do the battle thing where it's like, well, I'm going to be here in the parking lot first. What are you going to do?
0: Uh, just depends. You know, I like being the first one in the parking lot. (laughs) I really do. Oh yeah. But it's not, this is not just a a strict public land thing either. So I'll I'll give you an example. So this, this property I'm hunting in Southwestern Wisconsin for one week in November this year, uh, is a, it's an awesome property. I guess 90 acres of private land It's killer bluff country, big deer. It's, a, it's probably the best spot I've ever gotten permission to hunt in my life. Wow. But I, I turkey hunted it this spring. And so there's a, there's a ridge that leads to this food plot that my buddy put in there where on paper, you're like, every deer should come out there. Like, and I, I never, I, I hunted it one time, he hunted it a whole bunch and they didn't come out there. And we're like, why? Like, what did we get wrong about this? And I couldn't figure it out. And then I was turkey hunting there this spring and I got to that corner and I'm just glassing and I look and I'm like, okay, a hundred yards down the trail. I can see this glint of metal. I'm like, Oh, there's a ladder stand cutting every deer off from where we expected them to come. So I don't know when that guy was hunting in there. And he, he lifts he's totally legal. He's on his land. We're on ours. Like that's just the name of the game. But that kind of stuff happens all the time. And that kind of stuff happens in the rut all the time. Everybody's out. So if there's a, if there's a situation like that, or if if it's not happening for some reason, a lot of times that's why it might be you, it might be somebody else, but it's like, it doesn't matter. It's something's got to give, something's got to change. And so my thing, my thing almost always is like, I, I want to figure out how to hunt where or how other people aren't. You know, like, it, and so that might be the all day sit when people are leaving, or it just might be that guerrilla warfare thing where you get in deeper than everybody else, or you climb like a lot of times for me, it's going up, it's climbing. Like it's, it's something that takes a little bit of work to get in there or crossing a river. And now it's like, now I feel better about people not being there. Or like I said about the Oklahoma thing, sometimes we settle for a spot cause we want to hunt it. And the saturation level of pressure is so high you can't overcome it. So you, you either got to you kind of got to settle and go. Now my standards are a deer, which is fine. Or you got to go. I got it. I have to do something else. Maybe it's I only hunt Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning when there's fewer people than Saturday, Sunday. Or you know I'm gonna take that kayak in, or I'm gonna do something different to get away from them. Because man, I mean I'm sure you've seen this, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have like there's no shortage of pressure out there during the rut on private and public land. It's freaking everywhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. One, one thing I, I got to throw this in there. You, Cause you mentioned, you know, you like to hunt where and how other people aren't one of the things that I have started to do over the last couple of years, just the way I think about the properties that I hunt and how they lay out and how they're, they're multi use right? So there's a lot of other people on there other than just bow hunters. I have found a lot of success hunting kind of close to either the duck hunters or the pheasant hunters, you know, and it's like the deer seem to behave differently around that pheasant pressure or that duck pressure than they do to bow hunting pressure. And I've found that if I do get close, like if I get close enough where I can hear those guys and they duck blind, you know, high-fiving and hooping and hollering after a, a you know, flock of birds comes in, like those deer i don't know they just they're just different you know and other bow hunters don't want to be there they're like i want to yep. be so far away from that that you know it's not even funny the deer have just i don't know acclimated to it or yeah i don't know have you yeah. seen the same thing
0: yeah i mean I'm, I'm literally counting on that next week i know <laughs> i know i'm gonna have i'm i'm gonna see a ton of pheasant hunters off stand next week yeah for sure but the one thing so i i stopped into this spot. Uh, Last week when I was coming back from South Dakota, I had about four hours to go peek at a few different areas, and there were bow hunters and there were pheasant hunters all over. But I walked into my first spot that I want to check out, five acres of timber, and then a little creek bottom below it. And I jumped two bedded does right away in there, because nobody's going to pheasant hunt in there, because woods, right? You got all these cattail blues, and you got all this grassland, that's where they're going to pheasant hunt. And then I went, so I, you know, I checked that spot. out, oh, there's deer bedded there. Even though there was pressure all over around there, I went to the next spot and I walked into the, the, where I had my pin dropped, and I walked into the woods there and it, this is a little strip of woods, right? Like it's the whole thing is maybe a half a mile long and it might be 20 acres of cover total. Like it's real thin. But wow. so I walked in there to that pinch point and there was a buck standing there and there's pheasant hunters, <laughs> but you know, he's in the cover, and they hear that, like you said, they hear that every day. Yeah. Like there's there's trucks pull in there. They drop the dogs off. They get out. They're yelling at each other. There's gunshots going off, and these deer just work around it. And they go, you know, they're not going to bed out there in that grassland nearly as much because they're going to get bumped around. But those patches of cover that the roosters aren't in or the ducks aren't in, that's where the deer are going to be. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy what you're talking about because it's it's so. It it kind of defies what we think about for deer and they just do it.
1: Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Cause I've, I've talked to a handful of other people about it and they're like, dude, you're nuts, you're nuts. And I'm like, no, I've, I've sat on stand on the opening day of pheasant season and watched how the deer move around those pheasant hunters and how, you know, there was one really good example last year in October, uh, a small six point came in, bedded probably 35 yards from me. Pheasant hunters come in, they're blowing up the woods, you know, as they would go down to one side, he would get up and circle around the back side of the bush and lay back down. They would work their way back the other side of the field. He would get up, circle around the other side of the bush where he couldn't be seen and bed back down. Eventually they got close enough. He got up, walked up inside of this like gnarly clump of bushes and laid down and that dude held tight. Even as they, they hunted around it, I'm like, if that little one knows well enough how to Skirt that pressure and how to deal with that, and not just bust out of there and be seen and show himself to everybody. Then I bet you a couple of big ones do too.
0: They all do. I mean, it's but part of the reason I'm hunting that this, this spot that I'm hunting is all of my pheasant hunting time there. All the deer I've killed. <laughs> and that's good. It, yeah. It, I mean, it, that's literally why I'm going out there to hunt. I've never, I've never deer hunted it before, but I pheasant hunted it a lot. All this public land, and. I don't, I don't typically start pheasant hunting until after the Minnesota gun season is over, which is always mid November. And I had a, I had a experience like three years ago, took my dog down, went into this spot. It was the day after gun season ended. So here in Minnesota, we have almost 500,000 gun hunters spread out through, you know, it's a big state, whatever, but there's a lot of pressure during gun season just like in a lot of states. Right. And this is public land and this is the day after gun season ended And we went to this spot and there was a little lake in there with cattails around it. And in those cattails mixed on three corners of that little lake are patches of willows. And you're talking like, you know, a tenth of an acre, maybe a fifteenth of an acre patch, right? And I took my dog in there and hunted through three of those and I jumped like one twenty to one forty bucks out of every patch. Jeez. And not (laughs) until we got and I go. And so you go, this is not a fluke, right? Like yeah. this is these deer, this is the little sanctuary. And for whatever reason, people aren't pushing that they're not going in there. And so those bucks, even though there's private land around there, they're like, this is the safest spot to be. This little willow patch. Cause nobody comes in there. And then when you go in there with a dog, they don't get up until you are on top of them. Like yeah. they don't get up until you're really like, you make them get up the dog. You know, it's usually the dogs that do it. Right. But, We, we see that over and over and over again. And so I think, you know, you think about like how easy it is for them to keep track of us, especially if you're, if you're a pheasant hunter, you're, you're not trying to hide, right? Like you're, you know, you're not being sneaky and it's just so like, like they're so ahead of us in that little game that they don't, they're not in danger from us there. You know what I mean? Like they yep. figure out how to just like the dangers over there. I'm over here. And they figure out how to work it so well that it's not like they don't panic. Like you said, you see a little, little buck do that. He knows the drill. He's done that 50 times this season. You know, he did that when he was a fawn and his mom showed him what to do. You know, so you get a three and a half or a four and a half year old doing that. And they're like, I got this. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like those guys out there, they're not a threat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tony, man, I, I appreciate you coming on. I've got I've got one more question for you. Actually I've got two more questions. First one, what about calling? Like do you do any calling or messing around with grunt calls or anything like that during the during the rut? Or are you just gonna put those up because man, the deer just hear it all the time?
0: I call very rarely. Okay. I don't I don't blind call ever. Like I just I don't have that much confidence in it and I'm not hunting places where I feel like this is the move. Right. I do. I always have a grunt call with me because if I see a buck in a, in the right situation that looks callable, I'll try to call him, you know, but it, it's always, it's always like the work to make calling happen and be effective for most of us involves all the scouting and the confidence building to get to a spot where that buck's comfortable. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Like yep. we, people go out and they're like, I'm just going to rattle. I'm going to call. And it's like, it's not going to work. Like it's almost <laughs> never going to work Yeah, unless you're in a spot where they feel super comfortable and then they get real calls. You know, like when you hunt, uh, I don't know, elk on public land, you hunt turkeys on public land and you're getting towards the, the end of the season. Those two animals, which are super vocal, are super callable if you get within, like, a certain distance of them. And you're not going to get within a certain distance of them standing in the middle of a meadow, right? Like, you're going to be in the dark timber, and that bull is going to be bedded down the ridge, or he's going to be coming back up to go bed, and now you're 100 yards away or 150 yards away. Same thing with those turkeys. Like You go out and set up on the field edge on public land after six weeks of season, he's not callable but he might be following a hen around that's eating bugs in the woods. And if you get 75 yards away from him, he's highly callable. Yep. And so whitetails are the same way, right? Like I see a buck cruising way across, you know, an open grassland or something. I just, I wave goodbye. I'm like, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> but if he's if he's checking scrapes or kind of cruising around in a little wood lot and it's full of sign and I'm like, man, he's comfortable. He looks comfortable here and confident. That deer's one you can grunt at and he'll come in. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's good. All right, final question now. Give me Tony Peterson's space fact of the day.
0: <laughs> Can you imagine the audacity of Mark Kenyon accusing anybody of being a dork? Right, right. <laughs> uh, did you see? So this is this is my current obsession. I am actually writing about a foundation script about the Big Bang right now, uh, and relating it to White did you see the NASA DART mission that they just did? No. So NASA sent a 250 pound spaceship, little probe into space to hit a moon. So there's an asteroid out there that has a little asteroid orbiting around it and they can measure the, I think it's 11 days it takes to orbit or something like that. NASA sent out a, uh, it's called a DART mission to hit that little moon and see how far off of orbit they could knock it. And so this thing is seven million miles away. And this this little probe is moving 14,000 miles an hour and they hit it dead wow. center. They hit it like, the, the projected impact site, they were off by like 20 meters or something. Wow. At seven million miles at 14,000 miles an hour. And the reason they did that is they wanna measure how far off of its orbit they got because eventually there's going to be an asteroid coming a little too close to us that could cause an extinction event. And they want to figure out how to knock it off course.
1: Holy cow. Yeah. That is amazing. Isn't that wild? That is wild. And I, I have trouble hitting a whitetail at 20 yards with a bow.
0: Dude, <laughs> this, when you, when you look at that, I, I just, and what's crazy So that thing's moving 14,000 miles an hour to impact it. And it took a picture two seconds before it hit and sent back a partial image. So not only is it moving 14,000 miles an hour, it took a picture and had enough, whatever technology they're using to send a partial image back in that two seconds before it hit. That is crazy. Yeah. That is crazy. Wild
1: Man. All right. So that's
0: not, that's not really a space fact. No, but
1: that's, (laughs) That's pretty incredible. All right. I'm going to have to go look that up and check it out more. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. Where can folks find everything that you're doing uh, these days and keep up with you? Maybe especially when will the the one week in November air? Is that going to be kind of semi-live?
0: So last year when we filmed it, uh, every show dropped within a week or a couple of weeks. This year, we're not doing that. So we're going to film it this fall. It's going to drop in twenty twenty four. We'll have gotcha. some more time to build the episodes and everything. That turnaround was real tight. Yep. Uh, uh, everything I'm doing now, I'm, I'm full time with Meat Eater. Uh, so all my writing is TheMeatEater.com, dot My Foundations podcast, Under the Wire to Hunt. You know, everything I'm doing is there. So
1: awesome, awesome. Well, Tony, good luck to you next week, man. I hope you uh, hope you have a good rut hunt. And thanks for coming on.
0: Awesome, thanks. Good luck to you too, buddy.
1: That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at howtohuntdeer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me, suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, Deer Lab, and Onyx.